Broadcasting from deep in the Eublifaris galaxy, on a small planet called Gekonia, east of the albino hills and south of the raging leucistic river, comes the one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. That's right, folks. The one, the only, Gecko Nation Radio. This is your host, Dave Pelletieri, and I am happy to be with you guys on another episode of the show. Uh, this this show is long overdue, and I'm going to basically just tell you a little bit about leeches. And if you're new to geckos, okay, you're going to probably discover leopard geckos first. And they're by far one of the coolest species and easiest species to work with and most intriguing if you like genetics. Um, But sooner or later, you're going to venture online or you're going to attend a reptile expo somewhere. And uh, if you're in the Northeast and you go to the New York White Plains show or Hamburg, you're going to walk past Steve Cimelli's table at some point. And you're going to see this big stick and on that stick, you're going to see this huge gecko, and you're going to be like, and if you've never seen something like that before, you're going to be in awe. It's just going to be like, you're not going to believe it, the thing is alive. I mean, they're huge. These lychees, lychianus, are very special geckos, okay? And when you finally get to hold one and touch one, they kind of feel like velvet. They're so soft. And the way they hold on to your hands um, it's just a very unique experience. It really, it's it's amazing. Uh, Steve usually brings Bubba. That's one of his big geckos to the shows, and uh, he's very proud of Bubba. And everybody kind of knows Bubba. And uh, you know, they're very calm, mellow geckos, but they definitely, I don't know. There's just something so cool about them. So this show is a little overdue. This is the first Leechy show that we're doing on Gecko Nation Radio. So I'm uh, excited to bring you some great information on these geckos. And uh, I got a lot of great feedback in the group uh, as far as questions and topics to discuss tonight. So I think uh, I think you guys will like this one. If you guys want to check out uh, Leap and Leachies, check them out on Facebook. Uh, and I believe their website is leapandleachies2.com. So uh, if you guys own, if any of you out there that are listening tonight live uh, that own leeches, hop on in the chat room. Let's talk about it. All right? Love to hear some of your experiences. And uh, a little bit later in the show, we're going to open up a phone line. So if you're interested in possibly owning one of these geckos at some point, if you have any specific questions about husbandry, uh, we're going to give you that opportunity to uh, ask Steve. All right? Steve's got one of the most – he probably has the most – complete collection of localities and just the just sheer amounts of lychees in the country maybe even in the world i think i think it is in the world i think he's been able to uh state you know state that with some certainty and that's another thing you know finding what you really like and doing it really good you know i mean he picked that one species i mean he has other species he does crested and some day geckos and stuff, but he loves leeches, and he does that very well. So, 
you know, guys, if you're thinking about getting involved, find that one thing that you really, really like and do it really well. That's the best way to do anything in life. And, uh, you know, sometimes it's hard finding that one thing, but you gotta you got to look for it. So before I get started, folks, I want to mention two things. Um, number one, uh, well, Tim's, Tim's uh, working tonight. He's fighting fires in New York City, so he's not going to be able to co-host, so it's just me. All right. And uh, also, I'd like to mention that Perpentine Radio and Gecko Nation Radio are affiliates. And if you like Gecko Nation Radio and you'd like to expand your horizons and have another show to listen to and download every once in a while, uh, check out what Justin and JD are doing. They, they go live every Saturdays. Used to be on Wednesday, Wednesdays. Now they're on Saturdays. But they have like almost, I think, a three-year archive of shows, all different topics. Uh, those guys do a great job. So check them out. Also, <clears throat> excuse me, if you guys love geckos and you're seeking information, good information, uh, husbandry about history, there's no better place on the Internet for that than Gecko Forums. Okay, check out geckoforums.net. All right, great place to get information on geckos. Okay, and uh, also, very important, Gecko Nation Radio would not be possible without our amazing sponsors. You're going to hear some of them now and the rest of them at the halfway mark. Here they are. Great people, great businesses. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by... And if you're looking for quality food for your dubia roaches, crickets, mealworms, and superworms, look no further than MS2 Premium Insect Chow. Made with reptiles in mind, it contains no dog food, cat food, or chicken mash. Using only vegetable proteins and high-quality ingredients, MS2 Premium Insect Chow will have your feeders making a beeline for it. Contact ms2ent.weebly.com or... It can also be purchased at Rainbow Mealworms and AB Dragons. Dale's Bearded Dragons is your one-stop source for any reptile supply products that you may need, from Exoterra, Zoomed, Rapashi, Repcal, Fluker, and much, much more, and all at 20 to 50% cheaper than your local pet store or big chain pet store. They are also the biggest reptile supply distributor at most of the Northeast Expos. Contact them directly online at dalesbeardeddragons.com. Or message me on Facebook and I'll put you in touch with the owner. Reptiles Express is the absolute best live animal shipping company with great low rates. Debbie is the queen of customer service and will make sure your precious cargo gets to where it needs to. They also have a wide array of shipping supplies from deli cups, snake bags, heat packs, and more. Visit reptilesexpress.com and become a member today. Ohio Gecko is famous for amazing tangerines, snows, and other very unique leopard gecko projects. Thad also has some incredible fat tail morphs available from stingers to starbursts. Visit him online at ohiogecko.com and at expos in the northeast. He is also the owner of geckoforums.net. Longhorn Geckos is a father and son collaboration. Daryl and Cade Burton specialize 
in the best Super Tangelos, Pastel Raptors, White and Yellows, and really nice wild types. Follow them on Facebook at Longhorn Geckos and on their new website coming soon. That's right, folks. Uh, and also, I'd like to mention that uh, there's a standard 5% off discount code if uh, you order from your Doobie Roaches from abdragons.com. And the code for that is GECKO, all in caps. All right. Uh, okay, that's basically got the business out of the way. And uh, I'd like to uh, give a short introduction to our guest, Mr. Steve Cimelli from Leapin' Leeches. Uh, a lot of people know Steve. He's very good at what he does. Gave him a little bit of an introduction uh, earlier. Um, definitely is the master of leeches. Has uh, the most complete collection of locales in the country or maybe even in the world. He'll tell us more about that. Let's go ahead and bring him on. Hey, Steve, you're live on Gecko Nation Radio. Hello, my friend. How are you today? Doing great. Thank you so much for giving us some of your time tonight. This is going to be a great topic. How's everything? Everything's fine, thanks. How about yourself? Good, good. Looking forward to it. Um, Why don't you tell us a little bit about, uh, you you know, how you got involved in herpetoculture and more specifically with leeches. Let's see. Um, I guess I started with reptiles when I was a little kid and keeping anything I could carry home. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. I was in... I was in Boy Scouts when I was little, and boy, I brought home anything I could. I remember bringing home a canteen full of garter snakes. Um, oh, nice. Yeah, pretty much uh, started with that and frogs and whatever I could bring home. And now, now I don't know, I think I remember my first uh, purchased reptile was a granite spiny lizard. And that's back in, uh, God, it had to be uh, the, like, I guess, mid-70s, late-70s, and obviously mm-hmm. herpetoculture's changed quite a bit since then. Um, oh, yeah. At the, time, at the time, you could get an old iguanas, not much else, you know? But yep. um, I guess uh, I worked my way up to... Uh, I've had pretty much all different types of reptiles, um, mostly uh, tortoises and turtles for years, but I guess I got my first pair of leeches. Um, I guess I would say in the... Uh, late 90s, and uh, they were just a mixed locality pair, and boy, the first uh, first time I held one, I fell in love, so kinda, I kind of just went from there. It seems to be yeah. a common theme with leeches. When, when people hold them, they just, their ears, they find them irresistible after that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's a great, it's a great animal, you know, overall, they're, they're not a high care animal, and uh, almost seem friendly, you know? Well, they're definitely friendly. I mean, I see I see you at the show all the time, and you know, you usually have Bubba out there hanging out, and yeah. I don't think he's ever bitten anybody, right? Only one time when someone decided they wanted to tickle his mouth, but other than that, <laughs> you know, they, they just tolerate uh-huh. handling really well. You know, they're just very placid and docile, mm-hmm. and really just enjoy. You know, don't don't mind being handled. Whether they truly enjoy it or not, I don't know. It just depends who you talk to. You know. <laughs> right, right. So where where in the world do uh, lychees originate from? Um, New Caledonia, which is uh, which is near New Zealand and Australia. Um, it's you know it's a very cool area, so that's kind of why they don't require a lot. They don't require a lot of heat. They don't. They're nocturnal geckos. They don't require full spectrum lighting. So that's another thing mm-hmm. that makes them really desirable as a pet. You know, no light, no heat. 
pretty easy, pretty easy pet. Now, the only thing that is a challenge for most, well, to a lot of people is the fact the, that they kind of are very selective about their who they pair up and breed with, like their breeding partners, right? Uh, to a certain extent, you know, they they can be a little bit selective. I think it's all in the introduction. If you introduce them in the middle of the breeding season or in the summer, forget it. You know, they're they're on their guard. They're very territorial. Uh, but a lot of times, if you introduce them during the cool period, they seem to get along. You know, get along way better. Uh, in addition to that, I, I find they definitely do a lot of scent marking. So I, I do um, swap them back and forth in cages to kind of get them used to each other's scent. That seems to help also. Hmm, interesting. How many leeches do you currently uh, keep? Wow, I don't really know. That's a question <laughs> I can't really answer. <laughs> um, over 200. A lot. Yeah. I would say that, you know, with my breeding animals and uh, any projects that I'm working on or holdback animals, I'm over 200, I would say. Wow, that is impressive. Yeah, a lot of people ask me about how many leopard geckos I have, and I, I've never counted them. It's just, it's, at this point, it's impossible. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> say a lot. But, yeah, it's a lot. <laughs> a room full of that. <laughs> right. <laughs> now, now, Steve, you, you're a... Your collection is, you have all the localities, right? You have the most complete collection in the world of these guys. Is that true? Yeah, I, I, I believe so, to my knowledge. Um, I have every locality that's a known locality and available at this time. Um, mm-hmm. I've tried to be really careful where I've gotten most of my animals from so that I can verify. It's impossible to be 100% sure on every animal, uh, but for the most part, a lot of the localities, you know, you, you want to, I've, I've tried my hardest to make sure that they are as legitimate as possible. Um, right. You know, you, tr- researching back to as close to the island as I, can, as I can get. You know, a lot of my, most of my breeders come from Frank Fast, um, and he and Philippe Zavogli went to the island together and, and did a lot of uh, capturing it when it was obviously still legal. So uh, the majority of my animals came from um, them, and most of my breeders came from Frank himself. Um, and, uh, you know, he's he's kind of uh, very careful uh, where he, you know, he took them off the island and then put them in, in a cage, and that's it. You know, they've never really left that cage. He doesn't do a lot of, he doesn't really do any mixing and matching so much, so he, he's uh, on top of things. To the point where, um, you know, I questioned one gecko from him once because it didn't look right, and once it matured, it, it looked exactly like it was supposed to. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's, a, he's the source I've gotten the majority of my animals from. Okay. Um, and, one of the uh, questions we've gotten from somebody in the group, Mike Rickett, asks, uh, you know, he'd like to know a little bit about the history of the animals and uh, how many were brought in initially, if you know that. And uh, um, I when can't did they start even, really... You know, I, can't even answer those questions um, because I don't really know. Uh, maybe I should know, okay. but uh, you know they did a lot oh, of their they did a lot of their capturing in the early '90s. So I would assume um, I think animals came in in the '80s for sure. I have uh, a few animals that are very old that came in in the late '80s, uh, but back then at that time there really wasn't a lot of uh, 
there wasn't a lot of records as to where they were coming from. Ah, so okay. a lot of the animals in the early years were originally just Lichianus, then they started coming with the name Pine Island. Then uh, I think after that, you heard a lot of Bayonets and a lot of Moreau, but then I think at a certain point when people would try to sell animals, they'd kind of throw any name that they heard when the animals came in. And I think there were you know, a lot of inconsistencies with localities back then. So once once uh, Frank and Philippe went, people started to really keep track of where they came from because they realized that they were very different from the different islands. Right. And that that's like my next question to you is um, I'm interested in the different localities. And, you know, like when it comes to species like, like Suriname red-tailed boas, for instance, and boas, I mean, you have so many different localities and each one's, is a little different than the other. And a trained eye, you know, a lot, some of them are very drastically different. But then some of them are just have subtle differences. And yep. if you take this very seriously, you're going to want to keep these genetics straight and perfect and keep those localities with their same localities. So when it comes right. to leeches, Steve, yeah, what what is, like, how many different localities are there right now? And what... What differences do you notice between the different localities? Well, most of the localities um, are distinct. As far as the different island localities, there are a few island localities that don't have anything specific that stands out. Um, And then there are a few that that are very distinct. Uh, One of the most easily recognizable ones, I guess, would be Moreau. Uh, It has a very squared-off snout. Um, heavily reticulated iris, and uh, you know a lot of the different forms have different patterns that can be seen. Um, Nuana is one of the smallest forms. They have a tendency to have a, a um, an eye without reticulation and very crisp pattern. Um, each one sort of has something a little bit different. Uh, so. It, if you were to just take an animal and look at it, I would assume it's the same with the bow. Is if someone were to say, "What locality is this?" Well, it's not a hundred percent positive. Uh, it's not a hundred percent easy to tell just by looking at an animal, which is why background information is so important. Certain localities, like bayonets, um, can be a little bit more um, difficult to identify. It doesn't have anything per se that is one hundred percent telltale. Like, oh, that's a bayonet. Like, you know, with a moreau. If a moreau has if an animal has a very squared off nose, a heavily reticulated iris, and the, there's uh, certain blotches that, or, or certain uh, black lines on the background, if the animal has all those. You can kind of look at an animal and say, "Oh, this is most most definitely a moreau." To know for sure, we don't, you know, unless an animal has background information, which is why it's so important. Are they still able to um, export from New Caledonia or no? No, not for a while now. Nope, they've closed down completely. And there's been a lot wow. of smuggling, unfortunately, still. Uh, they're not endangered in the wild, but, of course, you know, it's illegal. So uh, there have been, yeah. I've heard of animals that have come out, um, and I've heard of people getting caught taking animals out. But, uh, you know, for the most part, you know, what's, what we have is what we have. Uh, I, I know that there have been a lot of people who have applied for permits and tried to get permits, I do not believe that the country is issuing any permits at all at this time. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's that's interesting. 
Um, a lot of people would like to be able to get animals from New Zealand and uh, Australia, be able to import to Australia at least. And, you know, it's just so, it's so locked down. And it's unfortunate because, you know, there's a species of blue tongues that we'd like to be able to work with here. And they'd like to be able to work with leopard geckos. They don't even have leopard geckos in Australia that I know. Really? Yeah. I get people contacting me all the time. Yeah. And they just, you know, maybe there's a few people that got a few there, but as far as, you know, all the different lines and morphs that we have, I mean, we can't get anything to them. So it's like, you know, like they're, they're just the, they're, they're, they can't get them. It's a shame. But, um, I think in the I've future, seen, I would I've like seen to see a melon. What's I'm that? sorry, I've seen a melon. I've seen a melanistic uh, blue tongs, and those are neat. <laughs> I yeah. saw those in, and I the albinos. Like, not see it up. Yeah, yeah, and I yeah. thought <laughs> gorgeous. Yep, I agree. <laughs> yep. I know. I'd like to They're see wise. in the future, Steve, like something where, you know, they could recognize uh, some serious breeders and you know give us some privileges like that. Um, yeah, it's it's difficult though because. You know they they have their laws for their reasons. Obviously, um, people take advantage. You know, yeah. if they were if they were to, you know, how how would so say New Caledonia, for instance? Okay, we're going to release some animals to some good breeders. Well, how do you find out if it's a good breeder? Anybody could, from another, you know, anybody from anywhere could say, "Oh, I'm a serious breeder," and you know, try to give them some type of information. Uh, to validate why they should get them, but there's just there's so many people trying. You know, I know I know some of the big people who have gone there and who have donated time and money and and uh, to try to help them to realize what they have. They haven't even been able to get permits, so I really ha- I doubt they'll be allowing it anytime soon. Yeah, it seems like today it's really hard to tell the good guys from the bad guys. I mean. You can make a pretty Facebook page and call yourself ABC Geckos and, you know, start paying for likes yep. or whatever, and you may be taken as a legitimate breeder. And meanwhile, you know, you could be one of the biggest scammers in the in the game. You know, it's it's crazy. Exactly. Yep. Especially yeah. with animals that are worth money, that are valuable. That's where that's where it becomes, uh, you know, that's where it becomes an issue. It's right. An animal is valuable. So, yes, and and leeches are are very valuable, and. Yeah, um, which is why there's a lot of smuggling. Same with the New Zealand species. That's why there's so yeah. many people that try to smuggle them because they know if they get them out of the country that they could, you know, they could get some serious money for them. Right. You know, I've, I've been right. to the ham show in Germany, and I've seen people with species of Naltinus, which have never been legally exported, on tables, species of Hoplodactylus tables. You know, those animals are clearly smuggled, and the people know that they could go there, they could take them home, and then they could get a decent penny for them, you know, which is why there's a lot of controversy with, even even in Germany, with the shows in Germany at this point. I know, I know from what I've heard, there's uh, been rumors that they're going to really crack down even on the ham show. Oh, no, yeah. I guess it's a double-edged sword. Like, I, I mean, I, I kind of, I agree, like, you know, to smuggle is illegal, yes. But I think, I, I believe there should be some, some exportation allowed with some things, especially things that aren't established in the hobby. And that's where people, somebody like us, somebody like a a respectable, responsible breeder should more or less get a job in one of these agencies so that they can make a difference, you know, and be on the side of the herpetoculturist. And that's what we don't have. We don't have anybody. um, I don't want to use the word infiltrate, but more or less, um, 
I mean, what would be a better word? You know, try to establish a presence for herpetoculture. Well, I guess I, I guess that's what. Yeah, I guess that's what right. CITES originally was for. Um, it's just each country has to keep up on the numbers. I mean, like for instance, Madagascar. Uh, at one point, Parsons chameleons were closed. From what I heard, this year they allowed some Parsons out. So that must mean that in Madagascar, they value their animals, they care about their animals, so they're restricting what leaves, but they are keeping track and and um, checking numbers in the wild so that they can say, okay, well, we see that Parsons are now abundant enough where we can let some go. So that country is on top of things, and that's why I believe um, there, you know, there are periodically changing the amounts that are allowed in um, with a lot of the leaf tail geckos. I've seen numbers go from hundreds down to 12 and then back up to hundreds again. So I think, you know, that they are actually, there are people who are there that are surveying where if they, we could find that in these other countries, um, maybe that same thing could happen, you know? Yeah, no, I know. And I think uh, the refuge for many of these species in the future is going to be, uh, captivity, because as native populations get destroyed and habitats get destroyed, I mean, all there's going to be left is captivity and herpetoculture, I think, in a lot True. of cases for a lot of different species. Some, yeah. For some species, for sure, yep. Um, what do you see, like, it, it, as far as the lychees go, what, what's been able to keep them such a such an exclusive gecko for so long? Is it is it their breeding habits, is it that they don't produce a lot of young? Because um, with other species, you know, they're very prolific in, um, you know, prices tend to drop as the more prolific sure. the animals are. What, what is it about the lychees that keep their values so good? Well, I would say for sure the fact that they are not overly prolific, the challenge of pairing animals, for sure. Um, right. They, they can, if they're kept right, they can be extremely hardy. If they're kept wrong, they can be somewhat fragile. So, obviously, um, they're having. I would say in the past few years, though, the numbers have def the numbers of available animals have definitely gone up. Uh, it's then going to be a matter of the animals that will hold value or or that are more value, of course, than in my opinion, are the ones that are are locale specific. Or, of course, right. you know, now you have a lot of these really fancy color morphs coming out that keep in selectively producing, uh, selectively breeding for and producing. And I think it's with, like with any other species, but um, with leeches, they definitely take longer to mature. And then, of course, are not, they don't produce that many, uh, that many hatchlings. So that's for sure kept them up. Mm-hmm. Let's talk a little bit about the morphs. Uh, what, what kind of morphs are available today? Morphs meaning localities or meaning... Are you talking about color morphs? Color morphs, yeah. Color morphs. Well, at this point, um, you know, people have been selectively breeding over the years for color for sure. Um, there are some colors that pop out in a lot of the different localities, and it seems that uh, they can... If you select two animals that are very colorful and breed them together, it seems as though a good percentage of the babies will be as colorful as the parents, if not more colorful. Um, I know that there's a few lines out there. And then, of course, a lot of people have bred in uh, the Granterra animals, so you have large size and color. Uh, there's a few people who have made some names for them. Pastel is one that I've heard. 
which of course is an animal, I guess, with a light background and and um, the high the high coloration, whether it be pinks or oranges or I guess more so pinks and purples. Um, and uh, other than that, uh, there are some some animals that are have dark backgrounds. I've actually uh, recently come up with my own little uh, joke of a of a form, which is a dark morph with purple or pinkish purple. I called it the Darth Maul line. <laughs> but there really oh, cool. aren't any any true morphs out uh, yet that are are proven, like you know, like an albino or um, or something that could be uh, traced as a, as a genetic morph. Uh, there are no examples. Oh, nothing like that. Well, you know, there is melanistic, and there are some animals recently that have been hatching out uh, very, I don't know, very pink or very orange that I think are leading towards xanthic or or uh, or something to that effect. But I don't think there's been anything that is a proven genetic marker other than melanism. I know for sure we have seen uh, melanism in a few, uh, hypermelanism or melanism in a few of the... Uh, types so they're like pretty dark or just are they black black the melanistic ones uh yeah you'll have i mean a lot of times you'll hear them referred to in lechianus as dark morphs now there are dark morphs that are born normal and then there are dark morphs that are born black uh as adults i would say they they do look a little bit darker of course than the normal x for instance the troger cogus uh, they're they're called a dark morph the cogus in general is called a dark morph and all of them have a tendency to get dark but there are some hatchlings that hatch out black, and they seem to get darker. Uh, you wow, find it also with pointing yay. Um, there's a few lines of mixed GTs. I know uh, Adam Lieberman is a guy who did a lot of mixes of uh, dark morph to uh, heavy colored animals, and I had a pair from him that would throw a black baby here and there. Mm-hmm. So it was a, an actual melanistic trait. Yeah, so it's, it wouldn't be considered a dominant at this point, though, right? It's like a well with more the Troger animals, with the Troger animals, uh, with the Troger Cogus animals that came from a gentleman Michael Troger who passed away a few years back. Uh, he had some legitimate Cogus tro- uh, animals, and there were a good percentage that were melanistic. Now I kept back some of those melanistic animals, and I would say this year is the first year that I was able to verify. Um, that a melanistic animal bred to a melanistic animal produced all melanistic babies. Wow, interesting. So I think uh, cool. you, know, you can definitely breed for it. Where in the past I was breeding, I'm sure, a melanistic animal to a het animal, which gave me a percentage of melanistic animals. Okay, so you think it's a recessive trait, possibly? It seems like it, yep. Simple recessive, Interesting. Yep. That's That's awesome. That's great. So now... I guess the hunt is the hunt is on for an exanthic or an albino. It would be great to see. I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> uh, and um, I guess whoever hatches the first one of those is going to be the envy of everybody else, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know with crested geckos, uh, there was an animal that turned up that was supposed to be pied, had had some white patches. And I've I heard that, rumors yeah. of albino. Yeah, I've heard rumors of albino crested geckos, but I've never seen any now. The ones that I've heard that were produced that were said to be albino, and again, I've never seen one, have no proof of it, but they were said to die right away. Now, um, I don't know okay. whether they were 
you know, whether they truly looked albino or if they were, uh, you know, I, I never saw one, so I don't even really know whether they were a whitish animal with pink eyes or whether they were just, you know, some strange color that was not quite normal mm-hmm. uh, with, like, a red, cool. reddish cool. eye, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I I haven't heard of any albino crusties yet, uh, but that's the first time. It's good to good to think about. I can only imagine. I, I saw that picture of that pied one you're talking about, which is pretty interesting. Yeah. Um, I think Matthew I never Park saw any other ones. Well, oh, really? I believe okay. he bred. I think this is going to be the first year where he's going to hopefully prove it out. I believe he produced his his F1 generation that would have been Hetz, and then he bred those back to the father. Um, I think this was the first year he was going to hopefully have somebody had had any any that were not normal born as far as I know. I talked with him in Tinley for a little while. And nothing, nothing yet, but I think this is the first year he should have some hatchlings on the ground. So we'll see. Yeah, you know, whatever I see at the shows, it's really it's really difficult to even get near your table most of the time. I mean, uh, your table is definitely a focal point. People are just uh, fascinated. I mean, for the most part, you're like one of the, you're the only a uh, person selling legitimate um, lychees at most of the Northeast shows, right? There are a few other people who who are also selling them. Um, I, I try to do a good job of having locale-specific animals and having a good variety of them, but there's definitely a few other people that have some lines that they've acquired you know, that, are, that are also true lines. Okay. But you definitely want to find a new market. Well, of course, we have that with the leopard gecko market big time. I mean, it's, you know, if a morph is popular, every guy at the show is going to put that morph name on their leopard geckos and confuse all the new people. Um, yep, yep, yep. So do you, I mean, you you guys, you guys fortunately, I'm sure, are not at the point where you're having a lot of people contact you asking you, you know, what locale this is or stuff like that. I mean, I mean that's yeah, like question I we get. Yeah, I do get a good percentage of that, and I try to explain to people that you can't really tell locality by just looking at an animal always. Right. Um, you know, right. having that background information. That's why we always try to give a little, um, I don't want to say birth certificate, but a little a little sticker that comes with the animal that tells locality and uh, and hatch date and, and parents uh, what line it came from so that if people keep track of that, then, of course, that, you know, makes it easy to right. pair it up and to say what it is. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of people lose those and don't don't keep them. But um, as I always tell people, take a picture of your gecko, take a picture of your label. And and there are a lot of people who do also uh, provide something similar. You know, mm-hmm. that's really the only way, though, is just to keep track. It, it is very frustrating to have that call, you know, can you tell me what this is? Because I'd love to tell somebody what it is, but then it's it's not yeah. quite that easy. Yeah. <laughs> we have a we have a huge I don't know if it's a problem but we have a huge influx of new people getting involved with leopard geckos which is awesome. Um but you okay. know new people are buying you know new people are buying geckos from sources that you know don't have legit genetics and you know they're always asking what morph do I have and I try to explain I mean you know if you're if you're asking what morph you have it's kind of like irrelevant because um you know if you're serious about this you want to get the legitimate morphs to begin with. You want to, you know, invest in the genetics so you know what you're buying. And sure, sure. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's like a newbie mistake. I did it too. I mean, I totally bought geckos I shouldn't have. I mean, sure. I, I was, we all have. I was, 
Yeah, I know. It's one of those things. Um, getting that question a couple hundred times a week is very exhausting, though. I, I've tried I to. <laughs> yeah, I've, <laughs> I've tried to do it and, you know, keep my cool as long as I can, but I just, I don't know. I'm just at the point where I, I just can't do it anymore. I've answered the question a million yeah. times. And it's yeah, like, it gets frustrating. <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, you guys are on your own. I mean, it's just, uh, it is what it is. But um, it, fortunately, you guys don't have all the crazy morphs yet. Um, what do you yeah, what do yeah. you see in the future, Steve? Do you think in the future, maybe twenty years from now, you guys will have stripes and albinos and all kinds of fun stuff with those? You know, I I really don't know. I haven't seen any. Uh, I've definitely seen some animals come out a little bit different within the past few years. Um, you know, when you have say a specific locality. Now there are again people that are breeding for coloration, so who knows what could pop up. I think uh, I've seen a lot of animals that have have pinks and all kinds of funky uh, background colors when they hatch. I believe this year I saw one that somebody hatched that, rather than it being pink or orange, it was actually yellow. I don't know what that will look like as an adult. Um, of course, I've held back most of the babies that hatch out different, something that hatches out, um, say, heavily pink. And I don't find them to have any um, serious change in background color, but a baby that, say, say a normal hatchling, one of the localities that it happens with frequently is bross. A normal hatchling bross will be kind of a, a grayish, kind of a silvery gray color. And then every once in a while, I'll get one that hatches out pink. Well, the pink animals don't have, of course, a pink background as an adult. Uh, they seem to have maybe a little bit lighter background, but the blotches definitely seem to, uh, the, the markings on the animal definitely seem to be predominantly pink or more pink. Um, I, I'd love to see the background color really truly change. I have seen some animals that uh, were very light in color, but a lot of that with leeches can be manipulated with humidity. So um, whether it holds or not, I had an animal sold to me. It was actually at a show. I saw it. It was, it was uh, very pretty looking. It was in a cage. It was very light in color, and it was at a pretty inexpensive price. So I said, you know what? It looks like it's going to probably be normal because I've had animals that looked like that in the past. So I purchased it, and uh, within three days, it was on, on with more humidity and on darker bedding, it went right back to normal coloration. Uh, so uh, see, seeing anything truly different that's held at, into adulthood, uh, I haven't really seen. Mm. Yeah. But I hope both. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Well, you never know. I mean, I think. I think just being in captivity will will spark these uh, animals to produce things. I, I mean, a lot of people believe that different environmental factors, you know, are able to spark certain genes to turn on and off, and it's the process of evolution that happens slowly in a lot of cases. But then sure. again, evolution has also proven that it can do spontaneous mutations too, which happen quickly. So... Mm-hmm. You know, the, just being just taking them out of that na- that natural stressful environment, I think will in the future uh, activate certain traits that normally wouldn't occur in, in nature. And I, I think it's just a matter of time, right? I would think so. You know, we definitely have seen an, a huge increase in pattern and color of pattern. Um, I've seen many pictures of the field collected animals, and I've even got a, a bunch from Frank and. In two, three generations, the amount of pattern and the coloration of the pattern has drastically changed. So, 
So I would say mm. uh, I'm not sure whether those animals typically get ticked off in the wild or or they don't uh, produce the thing. They don't seem to show up that way. Uh, I would say, you know, that you hear something like the snowflake. People have talked about snowflake animals. I've seen quite a few uh, pictures in the in the uh, in the field of Leachianus, and I've never seen anything covered in pattern quite as heavily as what we've seen in captivity in just a few generations from the wild. So it's interesting mm-hmm. to say why why doesn't that show up in the wild, and uh, why does it show up more frequently in captivity? Is it dietary? Yeah. Uh, you know, it's hard to say. Snowflake it kind of makes me think. Uh, so, so I guess they're having like a, a whiter whiter markings? Is that what's happening? Yeah, well, originally it was an animal that was more heavily patterned, um, which people called the snowflake morph, so a morph that had lots of pattern. And back in the early days, heavily patterned was usually more what, um, I think some of the original animals that were snowflake, that were called snowflake, um, were, um, I'm trying to think whether it was Nuami. I think it could have been Nuami. Um and Nuami does sometimes have the white blotch. So mm-hmm. that's where I think Snowflake originally came from. But in my opinion, it just means an animal with heavily pattern. So I wonder if the patterns have become more pink, you know, Snowflake could necessarily mean white. <laughs> just heavy pattern. Okay. Yeah. yeah. It's interesting to think about, you know, I mean, nobody really knows for sure about how different genes get turned on and off sometimes, but, you know, just to just to think about it is kind of fun. I mean, what if, for instance, yeah. you know, you keep, if you're keeping them in cages that are predominantly white with a white paper towel on the bottom, perhaps, and maybe, um, maybe they're responding to that at some point. I, uh, I don't know. I, I kind of, some people think it's silly when I talk like that, but we really don't know. And yeah, yeah we little, don't know what turns them on. Uh, sure. Yeah. Um, so, you know, yeah, we'll see. But, um, I got a question from someone in the group uh, asking about Goro. Who's Goro? Who's Goro? Okay. Well, Goro was a was a form that um, was sold to a friend of mine in um, in Europe, and he was bought, he bought the animal at the ham show, which again a lot of animals um, they bought a pair actually. A lot of animals would come into um, that area again, you know, with. With uh, and, and the person, it was a German guy who didn't speak any English, and my friend who purchased them, the guy kept saying, Goro, 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 and had written on it, Goro. Um, and it's it's a form that we've uh, kept long enough to see consistency. You know, when we first saw it, we thought something for sure seemed legit. Um, the per- we always, of course, question it, and, and that's why, uh, you know, we wanted to try to verify it. Frank and I did go to New Caledonia, and we went to the Goro region looking for animals. Unfortunately, we were unable to find any ourselves. Um, but uh, the Goro animal is another one that does sometimes show a melanistic trait, and they're very consistent and unique looking. They have a black striping that goes down the back, which is, is pretty unique to that form, and it seems to hold into the adult animals. Um, most of the animals have some patching down the side, um, the, I guess blotching down the side, but not not really much in the in the back of on the back of the animal. Interesting. Yeah, that's cool. So um, it is a GT form. It doesn't seem to get quite as large as some of the bigger ones like the Yates, but it's a dark form, so it's very cool. Dark with the white blotching on the side. 
Now, um, is there uh, is there anything to suggest that uh, lychees in captivity uh, get larger, uh, grow bigger than wild lychees? I would say almost definitely. Um, well, okay. in the wild, they go through seasons uh, where they have some serious cool-down time and also a limitation of diet. Now, in captivity, people pound the heck out of them, you know, and you'll get an animal that's a voracious feeder, and you can you can then, of course, supplement the diet and feed, say, uh, more than the animal, of course, would get in the wild, and they seem to do the majority of their growing between, say, two to five years. So if in that period you don't cool the animal and you feed, you feed it a ton, you can definitely increase the size of what one would be like in the wild. Yeah, okay. And does that affect their breeding at all from what you've noticed? Yeah, I, I don't okay. find fat animals produce so well. Uh, and when we're saying fat, um, I guess I should clarify that there's a difference between bigger and fat. Uh, for sure, I've seen <laughs> some of the animals that have reached larger sizes than they typically would be in the wild and not be fat. But normally, given that type of feeding, they can start to put on a little extra weight, uh, especially an animal that just kind of it, it doesn't move a lot and eats a very a, a very sweet diet. Um, so for sure, um, heavy animals, I find, do not produce nearly as well as, as fit or thin animals even. Mm-hmm. What do they eat in the wild? What, I mean, in, in captivity? Um, uh, in the wild, the majority... Of- yeah, the majority of their wild diet would be figs. I would say, um, you know, fruit fruit for sure in the wild, and I guess uh, pollens, whatever they could find. I think there's been some um, some evidence of vegetation and for sure other geckos. Uh, I've heard rumor of baby birds. I really don't know how many baby birds leeches in the wild would come across. You know, I think that's, that's uh, possible, but I don't think – I think geckos – I would say that they're they definitely will grab any gecko that gets close. <laughs> you know, they seem to be popular wow. food chain and, and I believe they'll eat their offspring for sure now. Of course not necessarily uh you know, any any small gecko they can fit in their mouth they'll eat. Wow, interesting. That I didn't know about leeches. Um oh yeah. Mm. yeah. <laughs> so hey, well, as far as feeding goes. <laughs> oh, <did> I? <laughs> I don't know if I want to <laughs> ask too much about that. <laughs> no, I don't. I don't feed my friends, but I've seen lots of pictures, and I'll tell you, if I've had an animal that was not doing well or had passed, uh, they'll be <clears throat> happy to help out. <laughs> oh my God, that's funny. Um, yeah. So, like, so I mean, I guess keeping groups of uh, groups of them together is not something recommended. Like small, if you have a bunch of small animals or different sizes, you definitely don't keep them together, right? Uh, yeah, for sure. No, I would say uh, I actually had one hatchling in the early in my early years of breeding. I had two hatchlings that I kept together, and I came down to one's head and the other one's mouth. Uh, now, whether they, whether he could have actually eaten the other one, I, I really don't think so. But it happened. I should have taken a picture at the time because, of course, nobody believes me. But it was. I don't know if it was trying to eat it, but it it had its whole head in its mouth and down farther than, you know, just biting his nose. <laughs> no, I don't so think whether he was, he was trying to eat him or not. 
Yeah. Yeah. I don't think he was. Maybe he was just asking him to check and see if there was anything stuck in his throat, right? I mean. You know, no, I don't think so. <laughs> I freaked out. It was my it was my early years of keeping, so who knows? Maybe I'm remembering it wrong, but I really don't think so. I, I know that a bigger animal will definitely eat a larger animal, and uh, mm-hmm. these geckos will definitely eat smaller geckos. No question. Okay. Yeah. All right. Well, in captivity, though, uh, let's talk a little bit about their food and, food and, and how you uh, feed them and supplementation okay. and stuff. What do you What do you do for them? Uh, well. There are definitely some diets that are prepared diets at this point. At this point, there's got probably five or six different uh, types out there. Um, and, you know, I've used a lot of different prepared diets. At this point, I've been using uh, the Big Fat Gecko Diet, which is one particular um, formula that's produced by Big Fat Gecko. It's got a, a woman in uh, in Florida, she is uh, a little bit of a hippie, so she makes it very natural, which I kind of like. Um, nice. She makes it all out of fruits, so it's kind of like a no GMO diet. Uh, but I do find Good. sometimes babies are a little bit hesitant to take it, so I have supplemented with some of the other diets that are a little bit sweeter. Um, but in addition to that, I, I add in um, a lot of different things. Uh, but the problem is I make couple of gallons at a time. So for me to, a lot of people ask, well, how, what, what do you feed your animals? Um, as a general thing, I think the complete diets would be the best way to go because you're not missing anything. And I have seen people try to duplicate the complete diet on a small basis and miss an important component and have a problem. So for sure, I wouldn't recommend for people to try to, to make their own diets up unless they really have done their research uh, but I have done, um, I have made my own diets or, say, supplemented the diets that, that I've uh, used on a regular basis, and I've added in things like mango, banana. Uh, I, use, I use an insect. A protein source would be like I'd take uh, 100 crickets that are gut-loaded and blend them up in the blender and add that to my diet in addition to, my, to of course, a calcium supplementation. Um, again, mangoes, they like papaya, banana, um, honey, bee pollen, you know, there's a lot of things that you can add to make up your own diet. I, I know people have used yogurts as a protein source. So I've used that a few times with pretty decent success. Um, but for sure, for someone that's feeding their own animal, I always recommend a complete diet rather than so, trying to do themselves. Okay. So, so the, this liquid diet is the way to go, making it into like a liquid? Yeah, pretty much, you know, they pretty much just lap it right up, yep. I don't think it's good to just do fruits per se. Uh, There were, in the early days, a lot of people would feed baby food and say they would just use peach baby food. Well, with supplementation, well, how can you be be sure that you're giving the right amount of supplementation if you're just simply feeding one type of fruit? You know what I mean? Mm. Or people will give, you know, people say, "My, my gecko loves bananas. Well, if you're just giving him bananas and he's not getting the calcium and the protein that's needed, I don't know. I just think over time it can cause a problem. I had someone purchase a gecko from me, and at the time um, the di- one of the diets had an egg white protein source. So he was feeding his geckos egg whites mixed with, um, mixed with fruit. Well, he forgot mm-hmm. calcium. So, you know, he uh, called me up. This is actually this is actually a brother of a veterinarian 
who thought he could, you know, make his own diet. Well, he ended up sending the animal back, and it was un- unable to climb anymore because it had a calcium problem, and it ended up, you know, a little bit deformed and a little bit crooked. So another another person bought an animal from me, and it loved waxworms, so he kept feeding it waxworms. He fed it as many waxworms as it would eat. Same thing, it ended up as an adult deformed. So I think, you know, these guys will pretty much... Uh, they will eat lots of different things, but if you don't get the right balance, you can really mess up the animal. Okay. So for new folks out there, don't experiment. Get one of the complete diets and, yeah. and do it yep. do it the right way. Okay. Exactly. Um, it seems I, I mean, like I, these people have done homework, <laughs> you know. Right, right. And, I mean, I guess at some point, though, Steve, I mean, uh, I'm, in, I'm in, you know, I have a very large collection, and at some point, we, I guess we all try to... Um, take matters into our own hands to cut our costs and maybe sure. maybe we try to breed our some of our own insects and whatnot. Okay. Um, so, I mean, uh, is there anything that somebody, uh, I mean, anything that you do in particular that helps you uh, save some money in the long run? Well, I would say supplementing with insects. I've never seen an animal end up with a problem when eating insects, as long as the insects are gut loaded and, uh, and, you know, you use calcium, of course. Um, so for sure, adding that, I've definitely seen increased growth rates when fed insects. Um, but as far as something in, in, I use the diets myself as a staple, you know, uh, for my breeding animals, for sure. It's just it's just easier than possibly messing up. So I don't even really have a way. That's another reason, I guess, why they stay up there in numbers also is because there really isn't a way to quote-unquote, cut corners and, and make it cheaper, <laughs> you know, without okay. uh, yeah. possibly, you know, without. Uh, there are a few people who have, I don't know if they've necessarily let out uh, a uh, an actual uh, recipe per se, um, but, uh, you know, again, there are people who have, have tried different things. I've tweaked the diets myself a little bit here and there, but, if you're really adding all the different things, I don't know if it really cuts cuts cost much. You know. Right. I mean, yeah. At the end of the day, I mean, it is what it is. You gotta spend the money for your animals to be healthy. I mean, there's just some things you just can't. Yeah. yeah. Is there any types of breeding roaches? That... Roaches, for sure, they'll eat. So if you breed your own roaches, I I know that's a one, one way. Or also crickets, of course. If you're breeding your crickets, mm-hmm. a lot of the Younger to subadult animals will really enjoy roaches and crickets for sure. Okay, yeah, that's good to know. Um, is there anything that you know you just never want to feed these guys? Anything that's bad for them? Um, I don't think there's anything that you could get them to eat that that is outwardly bad for them. Not that I know of. I don't know okay. of anything like, oh my god, don't ever feed your leechy that he'll die. You know, there's nothing like that I can think of off the top of my head. Okay, all right. I mean, now... I think they're pretty I'm, smart about what they'll eat. <laughs> yeah, they got a good nose. They know what to stay away from. If they don't, you know, think it's good, they're just not going to touch it, right? Yeah, for the most part, it seems that way. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, now, I mean, to, for somebody new coming into the uh, into the lychee hobby, uh, what kind of recommendations would you, would you make as far as uh, them making their first investment with either a pair or a single animal, what would you tell them? What's your advice? Uh, well, you know, it really depends on 
it seems as though a lot of people will always go for the largest animal possible. And, of course, the largest animal possible usually is going to be one of the GT animals, which can, GT stands for Gran Terra, which is the main island of New Caledonia. The animals that come from that island get larger, but they're also more aggressive. So, unfortunately, uh, people get lured into that. And sometimes, lovely, what they hear about the temperament of the geckos and uh, want that temperament, but then they want to get the biggest possible. And unfortunately, a lot of the bigger ones can be a little bit more aggressive. Um, so I guess I always try to I try to um, listen to a person and see what they really want. Is temperament important to them? So, you know, I'll, I'll talk with a person typically and say, well, what are you looking for? Are you looking for size or are you looking for color? Of course, they would say, well, I want something that will get really big. Well, bottom line is any leeching is really big for the most part, um, unless you're holding it next to an animal that is one of the bigger forms. It still looks like a big gecko. So a lot of times I'll feel a person out, and rather than push them towards that large gecko, the largest gecko, which, of course, has a price tag that's twice the amount of the normal one, um, a lot of the island geckos you can get at a reasonable price uh, and – still have a big gecko. So I guess most of the time people get lured into that, uh, I want the biggest possible and may not be happy in the end and also could have two or three for the same price of, of the uh, slightly smaller types. And when you're, you know, when you're thinking slightly smaller, you're looking at, say, 10, 11 inches instead of 14, 13, 14, 15 inches. So it really is not that much smaller. Wow, so, it's still know, a huge gecko. Yeah, it's still a big gecko, exactly. Mm. Are they the biggest geckos in the world, the leeches? They are, yeah, they are known as the largest species. There was okay. a species, Hoplodactylus delcordi, which was supposed to be way larger, um, which at this point is still known to be extinct. There are a few rumors that it still may exist somewhere in New Zealand, uh, but apparently in areas that are very difficult to get to, but I haven't yet to see a picture or proof of it. Just a lot of rumors. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Well, wow, that's, that's fascinating. Well, we're going to go ahead and take our mid-show break, Steve. Would you uh, mind coming back with us in the second half for a little bit and talk about um, yeah, reading, sure. perhaps? Sure, okay. absolutely. Awesome. Not a problem. Okay, great. Great show so far. Hang tight. All right, folks. Um, we are going to take a short break. I'm going to play the second part of our sponsor plugs, and uh, we'll be right back for more Leechy Talk. Gecko Nation Radio is a David's Fine Gecko's creation and production. You can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. Gecko Nation Radio is sponsored by... GiantLeopardGecko.com specializes in giant and supergiant leopard geckos with a focus on selectively bred exceptional lines of many different morph combinations, including high-end African fat tails and crested geckos. With over 17 years of experience in herpetoculture, Keith Kiggins brings you quality, integrity, and value. Check out GiantLeopardGecko.com on the web and on Facebook. Supreme Gecko is a great source for crested geckos, day geckos, and other species including micro geckos. Wally Kern is a top-notch breeder and gecko enthusiast. Visit supremegecko.com for his available animals and supplies. Ron Tremper is the biggest contributor to leopard gecko morph making. 
known worldwide for his amazing examples of living art. You can now download his Leopard Gecko Care app, his Morph Encyclopedia app called Leopard Gecko Pro, and visit his site, leopardgecko.com, to see where morphs are made. Rainbow Mealworms is the largest worm grower in the world and selling to the public since 1956. If you need the highest quality mealworms, superworms, and crickets for your pets, contact them at www.rainbowmealworms.net. ABDragons.com is your source for the highest quality dubia roaches, whether you're starting a colony of your own or just need feeders for your insect-eating herps. ABDragons.com can't be beat in quality or price. They are also a huge distributor of FlexWatt reptile heat tape and have very competitive pricing. Check out ABDragons.com online and on Facebook. Gecko Boa Reptiles is your source for the highest quality leopard gecko morphs and wild types. From white and yellows to radars, amazing tremper morphs, and rare subspecies. John is a world-class breeder and extremely knowledgeable. If you're looking for something truly special in geckos, contact John Scarborough at geckoboa.com and on Facebook. That's right, folks. And also, uh, make sure you use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout when you order your Dubia roaches from AB Dragon. And don't forget, uh, mention Gecko Nation Radio to any one of our sponsors and they will likely take care of you. All right. We love our sponsors. Uh, sponsor folks are sincere folks. Uh, these really are great people, great breeders, and great businesses. So uh, definitely uh, give them your business. Uh, try them out if you haven't already. Um, let's see. also wanted to mention that if you are a business or a breeder and you are looking to advertise and sponsor uh, our show, we do have a couple sponsorship uh, spots opening up in the near future. So uh, if you'd like to talk about that, message me at or email me, geckonationradio at gmail.com. All right, we're going to get back into the second half of our show. Let's talk about, uh, let's talk about breeding these leeches. So, Steve, what's, uh, let's talk a little bit about breeding and husbandry. Oh, yeah, let's, let's talk about husbandry first. Um, now, okay. say, say you uh, say you want to get a pair of leeches, and uh, today it seems like, when I was a kid, I'm sure you can relate, uh, I was buying my animals back in the 80s, and, you know, we had pretty much stamp collections of stuff. We had one of everything, and we were just trying to keep sure. stuff alive back then. Yeah, mm-hmm. and nowadays, uh, you, you grew up in New Jersey, right? I did, yeah. Grew up in Fairlawn. Fairlawn, okay. I grew up in Union, New Jersey. Oh, okay. It's not too far. Nice. Yeah, and yeah, I used to ride my bike to all the pet stores, and whenever they got something cool in, I'd have to get it. And, uh, you know, I had one of these, one of those. and But now today, people, um, if they don't, you know, get a pair or a 1.1, it's like, well, what's the point? If I can't breed it, reproduce it, experience what it's like to, yeah. you know, pro- proliferate it. So somebody comes up to you and they're like, all right, uh, Steve, I'd like to invest in a pair of leeches. Um, and uh, what what do you, how do you keep a pair? Uh, what do you do? Uh, well, you know, normally I try to tell people to keep one for a while just to to make sure that they know how to care for it properly. Um, mm-hmm. One of the biggest challenges with leeches is it's an animal that likes to be cool, but it also likes to be humid. Uh, so it is kind of challenging to, to do that in the majority of cages available today um, because most cages have lots of screening uh, on them. Mm-hmm. Screen cages, of course, it's very difficult to hold humidity. So uh, I definitely uh, find it easier in a cage 
that's a more sealed cage rather than some of the commercially available uh, exoteric cages or an aquarium with a screen top. That's the most important thing I would say is the correct cage, having the correct type of cage. Uh, there are some of the okay. more readily available PVC enclosures or acrylic enclosures. Those seem to work better. Um, they can sometimes be a little bit costly, so rubber-made bins, believe it or not, work very well um, You know, with some small ventilation holes drilled in them for oxygen to come in. They still do hold humidity. Um, that's the most important thing is maintaining a humidity level. So uh, basically... Um, you know, what exactly is your question? How, how, uh, how I would recommend? Yeah, I would say I'm getting the right type of cage, of course, the first thing. Right. Um, mm-hmm. Lighting is not overly important. Um, if you want to keep plants in your enclosure, you can. Uh, so lighting for the plants would be important, I guess. Um, okay. A substrate would be like a mulch-type substrate for adult animals, for sure. With babies, I find paper towels a little bit easier to keep... Uh, keep clean and to keep track of, you know, if they're eating and defecating properly. Um, right. And then, of course, lots of lots of branches, lots of branches in hiding places. Uh, they definitely find they, they do better uh, if they have somewhere to go inside. Uh, they definitely can be a bit secretive. So um, hollow logs of some sort for sure uh, are used. And uh, hide boxes. For adult animals, pairs will stay in their hide box at times if the cage is large enough. Okay. What about temperature? Like you say, they like to be kept cool. Um, is there anything that's too cool or too hot for them? Um, I think in New Caledonia, it drops into the 50s for sure. And I would say high temperatures are in the maybe 90s, the, the early 90s. So I would say anywhere between or low 90s, <laughs> anywhere between, uh, in the 70s, 70s are, of course, the best temperature for sure, but, you know, you can go as high as the as the 80s and I would say low as the 60s comfortably without the animals doing well. I've had animals in, in the wintertime, I'll cool my collection down for, for breeding purposes and it'll be in, say, the high 50s and the animals are still feeding. So <laughs> they, they seem to tolerate cool very well. So for sure, 60s and 70s. Now, if you're growing animals, I would say they need to be a little bit warmer, say high 70s to 80s. But uh, for sure, they'll they'll they could live their whole life in the 70s without a problem. Wow, that's that is cool. I mean, no pun intended. Um, yeah. You know, with leopard geckos and stuff, we got to keep the heat on a lot of the time. Uh, just for exactly. digestion. Love, love digestion. the way that. Yeah, love the way that smells. Heating up your fecal matter. That's awesome. I know, right? It sucks. It's one of the drawbacks to some species, yeah. Um, exactly. So they, can digest, they digest food no problem in the 70s, huh? Yeah, yeah, for sure. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah I mean, they will, they, will use, they will lay but, by a heat source if it's in the 70s and you have, say, a, a 78 degree or an 80 degree basking area. They may not necessarily okay. bask under the light, but if you have a warm area, they will sometimes lay near that heat source. Uh, but for sure, uh, we'll, we'll move things through without a problem, even at a cool temperature. That's interesting. Uh, I just got a message from Tim. He's at work, but he asked me to touch on um, the fact that some people um, 
feed the powdered diets without adding water? They feed it dry, et cetera? I have heard of that. Um, I've never done it myself, so I can't attest to whether it's whether it works or not, but I have heard of a few people that have done that. I don't know what their long-term success was, to be honest with you. Yeah, that's, that's whether it, whether it works or not, you know, I don't really can't really answer that. I mean, I have a few geckos here. I have a couple crusties and stuff, and I use mm-hmm. the the powder diets, and it seems like there's an awful lot of waste with those. I mean, they don't eat at all, and it seems like well, there there sure can be, but I think people have a tendency to feed way more than the animal can eat. First of all. Um, okay. If you if you feed a little bit less frequently and you pay attention to how when I say less frequently I don't mean starve your animal of course but right if you stretch it out a little bit I mean you know we're feeders we love to feed things we love to see things and we think the more the better um, but for sure if I if I feed my animals every day they're not going to eat everything for sure but if I with my adult animals if I feed twice a week they'll clean their cups. And they do quite well. Now, with the babies, if I feed every other day, because, of course, they're growing, um, they leave a lot of food. So then I just put a dab. You know, over time, I learn how much they're going to eat. And uh, if I keep them on a schedule and feed less food, uh, they don't they don't require a lot of food. Now, think about it. They're, even the, the ear crestes or any of the new Caledonian species, they don't really, they're not really in a warm climate, so they're not like what you would expect, say, an iguana or, or an animal or a leopard gecko. They're they're hot, so they're constantly eating to maintain, you know, that that weight with that warm climate, where with the, with the new Caledonian species, it's a cool, loving species that really doesn't require as much food. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, so I guess what, what would be, like, the um, – I'm always liking – I mean – to keep things in the biggest uh, tubs or cages I can afford to, that makes it and keep it efficient. Sure. So, like with adults, what, what would be the biggest or uh, the smallest size? Well, uh, tubs. I was. Gonna, it's, it's a good question that we deal with a lot with Leechianus. I would say for sure with Leechianus young animals, larger is definitely not always better, uh, and that's something okay. that we that is kind of important. I'm sure for most of the people interested in Leechianus to know. Um, a lot of times they'll put them in large screen enclosures or large cages with screen tops, and the animals won't eat. Uh, it definitely seems that they do better if they're kept a little tight as as young animals, and I guess I'm not sure whether it's to maintain a higher humidity level or if they feel vulnerable if they're in too large of an enclosure, um, but they definitely seem to eat and grow better when, when kept a little tighter. Uh, but for, yeah, say, an I'm... adult core... Oh, I'm sorry. Okay. No, I was going to say I can relate to that. I understand that philosophy because basically, um, like with other species, they like they feel more secure in close, cramped spaces, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it just yeah, makes them feel safe. Seems to. Yeah. Okay. And okay. I definitely yeah, I find it easier to, to maintain humidity in some of the uh, some of the smaller enclosures. Of course, you know, mm-hmm. exoterra cages. I can't stand for these species. I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say that on here or not. <laughs> But I find uh, exoterras or, or any of the more uh, commercially available enclosures, people use all that frequently used for these guys, and I get more calls with animals that are not eating and not doing well, and they're in critter keepers or exoterras. As an advisor really? to 
people keeping lack of backlist. I say steer away from those types of enclosures because it's almost impossible to maintain humidity. In the wild, the humidity levels uh, are always over 60% there. And our mm. homes are 30, 40%. So if you have any screening yeah. on your case, it's almost impossible to maintain that. Now, that's one of the other things that are important with Lichianus. Um And I know I haven't even answered your question yet, which is the size of the enclosure. <laughs> but uh, hey, but one, of the, one of the, yeah, but a really important thing with these guys is if you want to maintain high humidity, uh, if you're keeping it when it's something with a screen, people have a tendency to spray and spray and spray. Now you can cause a complete one of the worst problems. An animal won't die from from being kept not humid enough, but it will die from skin infections. These guys can, are susceptible to skin infections for sure. So that's why I find uh, okay. it better to hold humidity in and not soak down my enclosure and have, have a, a, a moisture source in the cage, whether it be a water dish with, say, one side sprayed down and the other side, and of course the, the furnishings of the enclosure are kept pretty dry so they don't get mm-hmm. skin infections. Uh, but a size for, say, an, a single animal, they can do well in something uh, that's, again, we're going to talk about adult size. My opinion with babies is grow the cage grow the cage with the animal. Start with something small, and as it grows, go a little larger. If it stops eating, go back a little smaller for a little while. Um, they really shouldn't go off diet. I have seen animals from a small cage put into a larger cage, and they go off diet for a few weeks, a month, and that can cause a problem with growth. Uh, for sure. So I would say, you know, let your gecko tell you when he's ready for a bigger cage. Try something a little larger. If he doesn't do well, put him back in what he was in before. Uh, and sometimes they'll, you know, you'll, you'll be able to tell when they're ready for something larger. But uh, a single adult animal, they can do well in something uh, as small as, say, um, 15-inch cube. They'll do fine in a single animal. Um Something that's uh, I've kept pairs in two foot cubes without a problem. You know, some of the twenty by twenty by twenty enclosures seem to work well for single animals. Now, of course, the, the larger types, say the Grantera animals, you probably want to go with something a little bit bigger. Okay, but interesting. Okay, I understand. Now, uh, what about what, what about water? Uh, you mentioned humidity, of course. Uh, do these guys like yeah. to drink out of water bowls, or do they prefer to drink off like uh, misting the sides of the enclosure or something like that? I think I think both. I definitely have seen my geckos come right down, and I have a water bowl in every enclosure, which they also seem to use as a toilet, <laughs> which can be yeah. a little bit challenging to keep clean. But uh, yeah. I have definitely seen them drink right out of the water bowl very frequently. Okay. But they will also, um, if you do miss the size of your enclosure and you don't have a water bowl, they absolutely will lick the size. But with the bulk that they have, I don't know if they, uh, depending how often you're misting, of course, I don't know if they can get enough moisture that way. So I just find it better okay. to keep a water, for myself, I keep a water dish in there. What about a little um, strip of FlexLot heat tape underneath where the water bowl is? Do you think that would create a nice uh, humid environment? For sure. In case? Oh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, okay. it absolutely will, but I definitely find that if you're not careful, it can get too wet. Too wet, okay. And of course, then, every, right. then everything in the cage gets moist. So the it's good to find that balance where you can get that 60 to 80% humidity. If you can achieve that, that's the best, right? Yeah, I would say over 60 is fine, but you just don't want, you know, you can have 80, uh, 90%, just as long as it's air humidity and not, 
uh, wet furnishing. Wet, That's yeah. the most important thing. Yeah. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So what I'll right. typically do is have a water source and then say spray that size of the enclo- that side of the enclosure. And if I find it seems to be getting a little bit drier, then I'll spray that side again. Just not everything in the cage, because then it seems to get a little too humid, especially if your if your cage is uh, is somewhat sealed in, you know. Okay, so a crowded cage with a bunch of plants and stuff is actually uh, good for them. It makes them feel more comfortable. So if somebody wants to really go all out making like a natural thing with live plants and all kinds of moss and stuff, that'll be good for them. They like that. It. it it can be fine. I've seen people keeping that without a problem. Uh, for sure, they need some strong branches and tubes. So, you know, uh, cork bark works really well. Uh, cork bark tubes are flat. So as long as you have enough tubes and flats, they, of course, are not going to really climb over plant matter if it's small. They're they're bulky, so they're going to squish everything in there, uh, unless you're using, of course, very rigid, strong plants. Um, so right. as long as you have branches and cork bark tubes and things in there, yeah, they're they're obviously fine with plants, but with living amongst plants, you know. And that, of course, nice. helps to maintain humidity. Over in Europe, a lot sure. of the uh, keepers there use they do a lot of live plants, and, and it definitely adds to the to the enclosure. Okay, and we don't want people using like cactus or anything like that because that's that'll hurt. No, for sure, no. Yeah, right. Okay. Yep, for sure, no cactus. Just want to clarify that for the new, for the new people. Okay. Yeah, more tropical right, well, plants. Uh, more plants that can deal with a lot of moisture for sure. Okay. Okay. Like uh, maybe snake plants and uh, some yeah. mm-hmm. pothos and stuff are good. Yeah, snake plants, pothos. Yep. Any okay. of your philodendrons usually do pretty well in there. Um, what about flowering stuff? Is that bad? Like maybe they'll eat poisonous flowers, perhaps anything. Stay away from. I don't, I don't. I don't think I've never. Uh, I've never tried. Of course, you know there's uh, lots of bromeliads where they come from, and I, I've never put a lot of live plants in my enclosure, so I can't really tell from experience whether it's good or bad. But I don't. I don't think that they're going to eat anything that's going to kill them. I, of course, would probably research into what plants before I put them in, whether they have a poisonous flower. <laughs> you know. Right. But, uh, all right, well, that's cool. All right, well, let's talk a little bit about uh, some breeding. And, you know, we don't have to go into, you know, every single thing about breeding, but, like, you know, like a little bit of an overview discussion. Um, sure, sure. So, so, some, so somebody has a, a 1.1, and uh, how do we get those, uh, how do we get them bumping? Okay, well, what I find to be a, a few of my tricks of the trade that seem to really help out a lot of people is, they do a lot of scent marking, and they definitely do pay attention to uh, each other's scent. Uh, okay. so, so for sure, I find it easier to, um, rather than throwing one gecko right in with the other one and seeing what happens, if if you take the furnishings of the cage and swap them back and forth, they, it can kind of familiarize them with each other without them necessarily being nose-to-nose and, and waiting to see what happens. I also find mm-hmm. switching cages back and forth seems to work. So if I have two animals in two cages, I'll just swap cages every few days just so they get used to each other's smell. Uh, this way, when I put them together, it seems to sometimes help out. I don't know for sure whether it does, but I, I definitely introduce the animals when they are cooler rather than in the middle of the breeding season. Uh, another Another method that works really well with some of your more aggressive ones is 
putting one cage inside of another cage so that they can, with a screen top, so that they can get close to each other. So say you had um, a two-foot-by-two-foot-by-two-foot visions cage. You can put a 10-gallon tank inside and uh, with a screen top, and this way they can get to be right next to each other, smell each other without biting each other because they can do a lot of damage very quickly. Uh, so mm. now they get to know each other. A lot of times what I've found is after a night or two, they're right up the one animal that's outside of the cage is on top of the screen or on the side of the cage, and the gecko that's inside the cage is kind of close to the screen top. Well, they obviously are showing that they are interested in each other. Um, after a few days of leaving them like that, you know, depending how how brave you feel, you, you know, a lot of times I'll just open it up and see what happens and watch and, of course, listen <laughs> Because if they are fighting, they are pretty loud, so you can you can usually hear. Uh, but I'll usually watch during the nighttime and listen for any kind of any kind of fighting, and then uh, of course inspecting the animals in the morning, seeing if they're biting. Bites on the back of the neck are very normal with breeding. Um, very common for the male. Well, they always hold them hold the female by the by the meat on the back of the neck for sure, and. Okay. Uh, that's, that's common breeding scars that I leave alone. But animals that are not getting along will grab each other by the face or possibly by the tails and pull pieces off, and they can, you know, they can do a lot of damage. Now, these guys are incredible healers. I've seen animals with chunks missing that you would think for sure they're going to, it's going to do them in, and they would, you can almost not tell that in a couple of months that it was even there, that the, that the wow. wound was even yeah. there. Incredible, incredible healers. With little medication, I had yeah. With little medication, I had two animals that I had um, in a a large Rubbermaid that had a divider that I that was made by someone. And the animals were able to get to each other, but they were uh, they weren't able to breed, of course. But they were able to reach feet over, and I actually found had two animals, one side by side and didn't even notice there was any fighting going on, and I guess that's my fault for, for not being on top of my animals as much as I should be. But uh, by the time I found them, uh, one animal had a completely healed missing front foot. Uh, it, had three, it had three toes instead of five toes, um, and a back foot had two toes instead of five toes. They had completely healed over with no medical treatment whatsoever. And the other one uh, was missing two toes on one foot and its whole tail, which had already regenerated completely. So, of course, oh, in my wow. cases, I have lots of, lots of tubing in. So I'll feed them. They'll come out and they'll eat and they'll go back in. Uh, so I don't necessarily inspect every gecko every day. And, yeah, uh, that's easy to by the time I like took that. one out, Yeah, by the, by the time I took one out, I noticed it. I took the other one out. I was like, oh, my God, I can't believe they completely healed over. You couldn't even tell. It wasn't a fresh <laughs> fight. It must have been a fight like six months ago. <laughs> you know, wow. these were animals that I, was, that I was growing for breeding purposes. So there were two females, and they were side by side, uh, able just, just able to reach over and, you know, I guess one grabbed the other one's foot, and then the other one grabbed the other one's foot, and just were able to get enough where they were, they, they they were able to do damage to each other, but they completely healed over without a problem. And now those are breeders in my breeding cages, and now in my breeding groups, I should say, and they they breed fine with no toes. <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. Well, I mean, I guess that's how we yeah. learn. I mean, I I made a few mistakes too with things, and you know, you sure. learn that way. 
Um, well, that, that's exactly. interesting. I mean, I think uh, like a lot more scientific studies should be done about regeneration with with geckos and stuff like that because I mean there could be technology that we could develop that that could help people from just by figuring out how it works with them. Um, so sure, sure. You know, I think they're doing those studies, studies now. Whether it'll ever work or not, we'll see. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, now they, these guys have similar feet. Like, uh, not so much like day geckos. They're not going to stick to the side of the tank or something like that, right? They're not, their they're oh, feet yeah. aren't designed oh, to yeah. stick. They can, oh, oh, really? Yeah, they can stick to anything. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's funny. People will, always, will commonly ask that. Well, can they climb a, a, a Yeah, their foot is bigger. You know, it's, it's large enough to support their body. So, by all hmm. means, a, a large animal can climb, you know, right up the side of a wall for sure. Wow, okay. One thing I think yeah. with, with your question on breeding, one thing that we can talk about real quick, I didn't mean to, to change your subject, but I didn't want to miss, I'm sure people would want to know this. You'll have pairs sometimes that are together. If they do get along, then I'll say leave them together and check them every few weeks. Uh, but I have had pairs that can live together for years with no problems, and then I've had pairs that even halfway through or toward the end of the breeding season start to fight. So it is definitely uh, okay. important that you keep an eye on your animals throughout the breeding season. And then I'll have pairs that are together for three years, four years, and then all of a sudden they decide to kick the heck out of each other and it's, they need to be separated. And then I have some pairs that have been together like eight, nine years without a problem, with no no aggression whatsoever. So it's it's not so cut and dry as to, um, you know, exactly whether how to get them to get along and whether they're going to get along. They They... I've had animals that I could never pair. I had two Yate animals, that Yate being one of the larger uh, Grand Terror forms, that at the time it was my only two Yates, and I could not ever, I was never able to get them to get along. So, of course, I got other male and another female, and I was able to get those two pairs to pair successfully, but the one male and the female that I had originally, I absolutely could not get to get along, and I tried every trick in the book. So it seems like these guys are like people, like they either get along or they don't get along. <laughs> and then even sounds if they like are getting my, along. Uh, some, yeah. Sounds like some of my like, past relationships. Exactly. Even if they've been getting along, all of a sudden they had a little spat, maybe uh, he didn't flush the toilet, I don't know. <laughs> all of a sudden they don't get along anymore. So that that could also be one of the reasons why they're a little more challenging to work with. <laughs> oh man, yeah. Well, you know they, that's it. Some people get along for a long time and then have a problem. The the nature of things, I guess. That's interesting. I guess. Um, yeah. Some know some know the secret and some don't. <laughs> right. If you if you get yeah. a pair to, um, if you get a pair that successfully breeds at least for one season, um, is it kind of like a guarantee that they? Even if you, if you separate them after the breeding season, will they likely breed with each other again the next year and the year after that and so on? Um, there's really no uh, there's no rules that seem to apply no rules. here. Yeah, okay. there's no rules that seem to apply. You can have a pair together and they cannot produce viable eggs, and then you can swap pairs, uh, change change mates, and then you know the male is fine and the female is fine, but for some reason together they were unable to produce. Uh, whether they just did not. Breed, it, it's it's hard to say, but I've heard that happen to a few people before, uh, where they thought the male was no good because they never got viable eggs. But then you put that male with a different female, and it was still able to produce, uh, and vice versa with the female. So, you know, and, and then again, you know, 
I'll keep pairs together year round for years on, you know, at a time until they don't get along anymore. Um, I have heard of people who only introduced them for short periods of time and had good success. There's definitely some question as to whether they can uh, retain sperm like some of your other new Caledonia species definitely can. So that's a possibility, too. If you're putting them together for a short period of time, maybe the female is able to maintain or, or to uh, store sperm for, mm-hmm. uh, for future fertilization. There's also uh, been rumor about parthogenesis in this species, <laughs> which there are uh, quite wow. a few people out there who, who swear by it. I'm 100% positive my animal, you know, produced. I only had a female, and it's definitely produced. More and more people are coming forward with that. I heard today. I'm not sure if this is true or not. That someone uh, that they that some zoo was able to uh, some, some zoo verified that they had a reticulated python that that was never with another that was never with another reticulated python that produced viably eggs. I don't know. That's true. You know, obviously, you did hear that. Yeah, we reported on uh, Steve, the news anchor, reported on that a couple a couple weeks back. Uh, yes, so uh, it produced um, I think seven, six or seven uh, babies. Like uh, you know, um, eggs. I mean, uh, six or seven eggs actually hatched. I don't know how many were laid, but yeah, it was. Uh, now were now were they all female? Um, that I'm not sure about. I I have to look into that. I can uh, I'll ask Steve to post the uh, news article on the Gecko Nation Radio Facebook page. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. That's what was interesting to me is. Is these geckos for sure can be, are temperature sex determined? So that's now they are okay. Yeah. Oh yeah, for sure. And we'll cover that. We'll go over incubation in a second. But my question is, if they are parthenogenetic, can the will the uh, eggs, if they are viable from a female, can they be incubated for male? Right. That's a good 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 point. Um, Interesting. Well, I, I guess know. I've never had. I've never had any, I would think that they should, for sure. But technically, yeah. if they are parthenogenetic, they're supposed to be clones. Isn't that how it works? I think, yeah, I'm not too sure on that, but it, it sounds about right. Um, I don't know if they're going to be exact clones. clone of the parent. Well, that's, that's yeah. What I'm, well, that's what I'm saying. They're supposed to be. Yeah. They're to be clone of the parent. Yeah. So it that's should be amazing. female. Yeah. Right. Now, if right. if it is a viable egg... And you incubate it for male, will it hatch a male? Hmm. Should it should know. if their temperature sex determined, but if it's a clone of the mother, it shouldn't. Maybe there needs to be an experiment done. Try to figure it out. Exactly. I don't know. Exactly. Well, I've never had any parthenogenetic births, so <laughs> I'm not the one to ask. There are a few. There's a gentleman actually that I'm speaking with, uh, have been speaking with frequently uh, recently, who has two females, and he says that they both have laid viable eggs. So I, I said that to him. I said, you need to take the eggs and incubate them. Let me know if they mm-hmm. produce males. Wow. So, how many eggs How many eggs will a female lay after she's uh, fertilized by a male? Um, typically two per clutch. So if, okay. again, I keep my pairs together all year round. So uh, I've had pairs lay anywhere from zero to ten eggs a year. I think one time I had 12 eggs, okay. which is not so common. Usually oh, that's, three that's, clutches is, is typical. Three that's, clutches that's is two good. eggs, so six eggs. 
six eggs. Okay, so any from, from anywhere from six to ten eggs a season is something somebody can expect if they're doing it right. And you know, you can expect getting... from, you can expect from from two to six as the norm. Very okay. rare. A few of my pairs will give me eight, uh, but it's not that common. Mm, More common okay. in three clutches. That's what they can expect as three clutches for the most part. Well, that's good. That's that's keeping them keeping the prices right, and that's uh, you know keeping them an exclusive type of animal. And uh, I think it's if they laid a lot of eggs like leopard geckos, uh, they'd be everywhere right now. Yeah. Yeah. They, for sure, the crested geckos have definitely gone that way, where they they're not a challenge to produce, and and that's that's why they have for sure dropped. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, you breed you uh, you breed day geckos too, don't you? I do. Yeah, I'm mostly just grandis, and I, I've bred a few different species, but I've focused on the grandis for a while because I'm trying to produce a grandis that looks more like a sapediana with red from the nose down the tail. I mean, obviously down the whole back, down the tail, and also with bluish hue. Kind of a little mm-hmm. project that I've been working on for, for quite some years now. I've gotten some lines from a bunch of different places and kind of made my own. I've seen them. I, I, I've i seen your – I've actually picked up a couple from you, too. At, uh, oh, okay. Yeah. You, How they doing? You're, you're, definitely, you're definitely making some headway with some beautiful reds on those uh, grandest. They're, they're exceptional. Um, Thank you. Yeah, why don't you tell us a little bit? Well, before we talk about that, let's just touch on incubation real quick. And then, I was just going to say, we, yeah, we didn't talk about incubation. Yep. Yeah, um, for sure. Um, yep. Any anything incubated? If now here's the here's the catch: is you need to get the egg the day it's hatched, the day it's laid. So if you get the okay. day the egg the day it's laid, it seems as though eggs incubated from 65 to say 76 are almost sure to produce female. Uh, they're going to take, of course, a lot longer to incubate because they're cooler, but they almost almost surely produce female. Anything from, uh, say, 75 to 80, you're going to get a mix. And anything 80 to 82, I've heard of people going as high as 86. I don't really recommend going that high. I, I find that you definitely uh, end up with more bad eggs. If, if it, I try to do between 80 and 82, and then you predominantly get males. Now, I also have been told that um, the first two weeks of incubation is what uh, dictates the, the sex of the hatchling. So I believe that you okay. can keep it in the in the lower 80s uh, for the first two weeks and then lower your temperatures down gradually, and that can give you, um, you know, a male that hatches out a little bit larger. If you do 80 to 82 the whole time, I've found that the, the hatchlings are a little bit smaller, uh, but but male, of course. Okay. So I definitely find the longer they spend in the egg, the, the bigger the hatchling. doesn't necessarily mean it will be a larger adult, uh, but, you know, usually you have a, a little bit healthier hatchling when, they're, when they cook a little bit longer. <laughs> right. How long do they usually uh, cook for, for the males or the females? Uh, at 80 degrees, usually 60 days. Um, at uh, 76 degrees, about ninety days. Okay. Well, that's kind of similar to leopard the longer the cooler is, longer it would be. Is it? Yeah. Yeah. So it's not. It's a little different, but it's uh, the the sex uh, sexual uh, sex determination is uh, temperature sex determination is 
is interesting because that's very similar to Leopard Geckos. And um, I'm wondering if this would work with uh, lychees. Uh, with 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 some of the albinos, we like to uh, incubate our females at a we we incubate if we want females we incubate them at a low temperature for the first 21 days, uh, usually you know 80 degrees or so. Uh, but then after that, we gradually raise the temperature up to anywhere up to 88 or 90 degrees, uh, so we get lighter, prettier uh, examples. Uh, so less melanin will, uh, you know, uh, be produced in the skin. And I'm wondering if if you guys do something similar with the lychees. I never have, but it would be interesting to see what happens. Um, the animals that I've hatched out that were that say, a heavy pink or purple hatchling, or heavy pink or orange hatchling, uh, I've had it in both the male and female incubators, so I have not found anything um, per se that, that is causing it. I think it's just, uh, you know, the way the genes lie. I, I'll have, I have one line of broth animals that, say, will give me six or eight babies a year, and two will be pink and the rest will be normal, and one will be a male and one will be a female. So... You know, I'm getting it at both incubation temperatures, so I have not found it yet, but it would be interesting to try to see if it, okay. it actually does change anything. Yeah, I mean, it's proven to work with leopard geckos, so you never know what it might do with those guys. Sure, be cool to see. All right. Well, why don't we talk uh, briefly about some of the other species that you work with? We don't have to go into depth, and, uh, you know, let's also uh, help everybody find you out there uh, on the web and whatnot. Okay. Um, other species I work with. Let's see. Um, I have uh, been working with rare lizards, I guess, for years. I've had turtles and tortoises my whole life, uh, redfoot tortoises being my favorite. I also work with the Vietnamese black belly leaf turtle, um, Geomitea oh, nice. uh, angleri, uh, mm-hmm. a small group of Geomitea japonica, um, and again, redfoot tortoises um, is one of my favorite species just very personable and hardy, just a pet. You know, don't really breed too many. I have produced a few babies over the years. Um, I have a few Parsons chameleons that I've had for a while now. I'm not sure if I'm going to be able to produce them, but uh, definitely enjoy them, enjoy working with them. I just recently Mm -hmm. brought in some Cummings monitors. uh, I do like the monitor species and brought in some of the Cumming eye monitors. Um, Chinese crocodile lizards, caiman lizards, I've worked with uh, definitely like um, reptiles or lizards that, that are in conjunction with water. Those seem to be, I, I do aquariums as a lit for a living, so I do really enjoy working with the species that are that are in water. Um, oh, nice. What other species do I work with? Uh, got a few of the gallowots, the angler lizards um, from the diplogossus, the, the genus. Uh, there's one okay, from yeah. Brazil. Um Lesson A, I've produced a bunch of babies. No, those are really kind of neat, very, very beautiful. And Millie punctatus, they come from um, Malpelo Island off of Colombia. That's another species that I work with. Uh, mm-hmm. Day geckos, again, grandest for sure. I work with Clemeri a little bit. Um, what else? Of course, all the other New Caledonian species, uh, the Chihua. Uh, I do have a small, small group of crested geckos, um, gargoyle geckos, and... Uh, the live-bearing New Caledonia species, the Trachorhynchus and the Trachocephalus. Oh, cool. I'm for sure work with those. Um, 
fact, just had a bunch of babies born a couple of months back. Those are a lot of fun. When you open up a cage and there's a baby. <laughs> yeah. Those are definitely new species to work with. Uh, snakes, I have uh, Rhinocophis, which is the um, rhino rat snakes. Yep. Um, those are kind of cool. And uh, oh, yeah. and I just recently got some cocci, the uh, bamboo rat snakes. Yeah, those are awesome. Those are kind of cool. Let's see what else. What am I missing? Uh, I don't know. I think that might that might be be about it. The monitors are the wow, that's the, the coming the coming monitors. Those I'm excited to work with. I've had a water monitor just, on for years. They're a lot of fun. I put the picture of those. I saw the picture you posted on Facebook. I put them on the slideshow for the uh, people to look at while the show's going on. Those are nice monitors. Oh, no. Really beautiful. Yeah, they're they're yeah. they're doing really well. I ended up bringing a group of them. I'm sorry. Yeah, yeah. That's that's what uh, I, I saw them when I was over at the ham show. So it took quite a while to put it together. Uh, but yeah, I, I still have a bunch available now. But they're definitely a more pricey monitor, but beautiful. Mm-hmm. Are you breeding monitor. the? Uh, quite a are you breeding the the red-eyed crocodile skinks? I am not. A buddy of mine who is always at my table is working with them and has been for a while. Uh, he usually has a few babies. Yeah. Those are nice. Yeah, I do I like work. Them. I do different. work with the Shinnis, the Shinnosaurus. I work with the Chinese crocodile lizards, and I usually have babies in the spring. Uh, but they're definitely more challenging. Mm-hmm. Interesting, for sure. Well, that's cool. Yeah. You got a really nice collection there, Steve. That's really, really nice stuff. Thanks. Yeah. yeah. All right. Well, we're coming to the end of the show, and I, I just want to seriously thank you for giving us your time and all the great information and. Um, Not a problem. I, Thank you. I enjoyed it for sure. Oh, cool. And and I people that believe that uh, you know a lot of us are basically artists with what we're doing, and uh, I think you're doing exceptional work just from everything I see. And uh, just want to wish you the best of luck and to keep it up. And also, you're welcome to come back on our show anytime you'd like. You have an open invitation. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Definitely had a good time. All right. Cool. Why don't you give out your information so uh, folks can find you and. Uh, Maybe mention some of the shows that you attend. So if anybody that doesn't know you, we'll, we'll be able to find you pretty easily. Sure. Okay. Um, typically, I'm in uh, I'm at Tinley Park. Both both of the shows, the one in March and the one in what is it October? I think it's October. Yeah. Um, so. Definitely ha- Hamburg, the Hamburg Reptile Show. I'm at uh, White Plains Reptile Show, for sure. Um, Long Island, and what am I missing? New Hampshire, here and there, of course. Uh, I've done Daytona the past year or two, uh, which that show seems to be getting a little smaller over the years, for sure. Tinley definitely has seemed to have taken over. Um, But uh, anybody interested, of course, can go to my website. I don't have available animals up to date uh, at any time, but uh, I have lots available. But my website is uh, L-E-A-P-I-N. L-E-A-C-H-I-E-S dot com. And I also have, of course, a Facebook page uh, under Leap and Leeches. I do not run the Facebook page. I have a friend who does it, and he's constantly putting up all kinds of goofy uh, comics, but uh, people seem to really <laughs> like it. But, and he doesn't always get back to people right away, but, uh, of course, my phone number is both on the website and on the Facebook page, so anybody trying to reach me, of course, that way is 
course, to call. I don't know. Can I give my number out? I think I can do that. Absolutely. Go right ahead. Yeah, they could reach me, of course, directly at 201-406-6655. So there you go. Okay, cool. Awesome. All right, Steve. Well, uh, I'll definitely uh, stop by and say hello at the, the White Plains show and uh, check out what you okay. got over there. And and thanks again for uh, coming on with us. Okay. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Have a great night. You too. Thanks, Steve. Take care. Bye now. Take care. All right, folks, there you have it. A really cool episode all about lychees. Uh Steve did a great job. I'm really uh, impressed with uh, his work. His, uh, he's doing just phenomenal stuff. And if you get a chance to come to any of the expos that he mentioned, uh, definitely stop by his table if you can get near it. Usually there's just a ton of people there uh, checking out what he has. So uh, give it a shot, and maybe you'll fall in love with a lychee. Uh, it's not really hard to do. They're incredible incredible geckos and uh i don't know i've been tempted for years to take the plunge uh into them and if i ever uh, decide to do it i'm going to get on some him so um i definitely uh definitely recommend checking them out all right uh folks i'm going to go ahead and play the outro and come back with my closing remarks hang tight gecko nation radio is a david's fine geckos creation and production you can visit the show's Facebook page at Gecko Nation Radio. I also have a great family-friendly group on Facebook called Gecko Nation. Apply for membership today. The jazz music you heard tonight was generously donated and created by Jeremy Turgeon of J&D Reptiles. Thank you very much, Jeremy, for the great musical pieces. You can check out Jeremy at J&D Reptiles on YouTube and on Facebook. And a very special thank you to our news anchor, graphic designer, and audio tech, Steve Barker. All the graphics, audio sponsor plugs, and music overlays were assembled by Steve. Check out Steve on YouTube at BC Barker Creations. He has some terrific videos for the herb community with amazing geckos and snakes. Please support the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance and U.S. ARC. Gecko Nation Radio is proud to support both of these organizations. Please donate to U.S. ARC so that they have the funds needed to legally protect pet owners' rights nationwide. You can donate to the U.S. ARC Legal Defense Fund at www.usarc.org. If you would also like to learn about advocacy and how you can take action on a state and local level, please subscribe to the U.S. Herpetocultural Alliance newsletter and blog at www.usherp.org. All right, folks, another great episode comes to a close. Uh, I just want to uh, take a moment to thank all of our listeners, all of our sponsors. Uh, you guys are great. You guys out there, especially in Gecko Nation group, um, you guys motivate us to keep going strong and keep doing what we do. And uh, just want to uh, thank you all for all the support over the last year. Um, we never did a, a year anniversary show, a celebration. We just kind of forgot all about that. And uh, we definitely have passed, surpassed our uh, one year doing Gecko Nation Radio. So I, I'm trying to think of something fun to put together uh, to celebrate that and uh, thinking about it. So if you guys have any ideas, uh, maybe make a post in the group or uh, PM me or something, and maybe we can do something cool. All right? And uh, lots more to come from Gecko Nation Radio. We have a lot of great ideas and uh, bringing on the 
the team, the new team member, Mr. Tim Walton and uh, Steve, uh, we're doing doing some good things and some interesting ideas are coming up. So hope you guys will like them. All right, folks, I'm going to go ahead and take a minute to mention our sponsors, and then I'm going to play a cool song and take us out. All right, Dale's Bearded Dragons, best reptile supply distributor, the biggest reptile supply distributor at all the Northeast Expos. Uh, you can also contact them online at dalesbeardedragons.com. If you see them at any of the Northeast shows, mention Gecko Nation Radio, and you're going to get a discount on any reptile supplies. And Bearded Dragons is now the... East Coast Master Distributor for FlexWatt Heating. So if you need FlexWatt, uh, get in touch with Mario Bellator or Dale Creator Dragons on Facebook or online on their website, and they will take care of you. AB Dragons. AB Dragons is the place to get your Dubia Roaches. Use the code GECKO, all in caps, at checkout for 5% off your order. Best Dubia Roaches. Fed the best food. Really good stuff. Really quality insects for you. Gecko Boa Reptiles. That's John Scarborough. Great guy, great breeder, great animals. Uh, really spares uh, no expense and definitely uh, has just some incredible wild types, uh, very interesting morphs, and some uh, some rare species that you don't normally see in the trade. Check out geckoboa.com and geckoboa reptiles on Facebook. Supreme Gecko, Wally Kern, he specializes in crestes, day geckos, uh, and some odds and ends and um, not so commonly seen. Uh, Supreme Gecko also has uh, food and stuff, supplies that you may need for your gecko. So check them out at SupremeGecko.com. OhioGecko.com is run by Thad, and he also runs GeckoForums.net. Uh, check out OhioGecko and GeckoForums.net and uh, see the stuff that he's working on. It's got some amazing tangerines, really nice snows, uh, some unique fat tails. Uh, he's got his own... Fat Tail Morph that he's working on, which is called the Starburst. Really cool. Check out OhioGecko.com. Rainbow Mealworms, biggest worm farm in the world, folks. We are proud to have Jillian Spence, uh, which is the owner of Rainbow, uh, in our community. And uh, Jillian goes out of her way helping out the uh, herb community. And she really has fantastic pricing and high-quality feeders. So check out RainbowMealworms.net and mention Gecko Nation Radio. Reptiles Express. Reptiles Express is the company to use to get your FedEx labels. They got the best pricing and the best customer service. Use Reptiles Express if you're shipping reptiles anywhere in the U.S. Mr. Ron Tremper, www.leopardgecko.com, the godfather of leopard geckos. And he has incredible leopard geckos available on his website. And he also has some interesting apps like the Leopard Gecko Pro and Leopard Gecko Care for your smartphones. Check them out and uh, download those apps. All right. Last but not least, we got a couple more. Uh, let's see. Actually, one more. Dal Burton, Longhorn Geckos. Uh, Daryl Burton and Cade, his son, are working on some incredible Leopard Gecko morphs, the best of the best. He's got some Super Tangelos, Pastel Raptors, some really nice um, radars and raptors, all kinds of cool stuff. Check out, and he's got some wild types coming up too. So check out Longhorn Geckos on Facebook. Their website will be up and running very soon. All right, folks, I want to thank all the listeners and everybody that hanged out in the chat room tonight. It was great seeing you all, and we will do it again next week. Here's a song. Take us out. Everybody, hope you like Tom Petty. Have a good night. <laughs>